Canada strongly condemns President Putin's recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk as so-called independent states. This recognition is a violation of Russia's obligations under international law and the Charter of the United Nations. From the McGill International Review, I'm Victoria Ponte, and this is The War for Ukraine, a new podcast where we will cover anything and everything pertaining to the Russia-Ukraine war. As Russia invaded Ukraine on the morning of February 24th, the world stood in shock as the images on television and social media depicted millions of families escaping for safety. With Russia's violation of international norms, many questioned the power of international law and the United Nations. To explore the complexities of the situation and what we can expect in the future, I'm here today with Simon Bertrand. My name is Simon Bertrand. I'm a PhD candidate and course lecturer at the McGill Department of Political Science. We'll be discussing the origin of the United Nations, how it fits into the international stage, and their current role in the Ukraine crisis. Hello, Professor Bertrand. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the situation in Ukraine, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about, just give us some context about the UN. Uh, so the UN was uh, created in uh, 1945, following World War II, after a long uh, negotiation process. In some way, the, the UN was created to do what the League of Nations could not do, which was to, to prevent a major uh, conflict. Uh, so when you look at uh, the UN Charter uh, and the mandate of the UN, it, the main priority is maintaining peace and security. Uh, so in other words, avoiding uh, major conflicts, major confrontations uh, between great powers. Uh, and it does that by establishing a collective security uh, system uh, to uh, to prevent these conflicts from happening. Uh, but also the, the UN has a, a slightly broader mandate that uh, the, the League of Nations had. So it's, it's also a, an umbrella organization that uh, supervises and coordinates a lot of um, a lot of activities related to economic and social development. How have these mandates changed since its creation or have they remained the same? So the UN has evolved in multiple ways through uh, its existence. Uh, when you read the UN Charter, this is a text that has many paradoxes, in fact. So it is, on the one hand, very rigid, uh, a very rigid text. Uh, it is extremely difficult to uh, amend the UN Charter. So the, the threshold to amend the UN Charter is specified in Article 108. Uh, and it says that uh, to amend anything in the UN Charter, you need a two-thirds vote at the General Assembly of the UN, so among all the UN member states. Um, and you need the, um, the approval of the, the five permanent members of the Security Council, the, the so-called P5. Uh, so that explains a little bit why, although the UN has a lot of organs that are outdated, uh, anachronistic, 
they haven't been uh, there haven't been amendments uh, about these organs. On the other hand, the UN Charter has a lot of flexibility. So when you read the Charter, you see that the UN uh, has been designed to also adapt itself to changes and take on uh, new issues and activities. Uh, so you have articles that uh, make it possible to create uh, subsidiary organs and specialized agencies uh, when UN organs and UN member states feel that they need to create a new entity or new agency to take care of a new issue. Uh, so that's to say that the yeah the UN has evolved in many ways, but has also uh, a lot of its structures are also outdated. Speaking of some of the structures that I think might seem strange nowadays, could you talk a little bit more about the Security Council? Like, what is the point of having permanent members and members that are not permanent? Um, initially, the if you want the design of the Security Council was the the result of uh, long negotiations, uh, especially negotiations among the great powers. Uh, so when you look at historically the the creation process of the UN, uh, all the uh, all the design of the Security Council was uh, adopted by great powers before the San Francisco conference in which uh, all member states, so all the founding member states of the UN were invited. And essentially the calculation was to say uh, that we should not reproduce the mistakes of the League of Nations, which uh, had been active between uh, World War One and World War Two, uh, and the calculation was to say we need um, we need an organ that is quite reactive, so small in size, uh, and in which uh, that that this organ cannot work according to the unanimity principle. Uh, otherwise, it's going to do like for the League of Nations, it's going to be paralyzed all the time. So there is a voting system. But then a lot of great powers had um, reserves about joining a security council that could impose decisions on them. So the veto power was added uh, for the five permanent members. So France, uh, the UK, the United States, uh, China and Russia to uh, compel them to join the, the security council. Otherwise, it's possible that uh, so this, uh, Russia, which was the Soviet Union at the time, will not have joined, for instance. So the veto was more of an uh, incentive for other powers to join, rather than a sort of measure of internal <coughs> control, if that makes sense. Exactly. This was, uh, so when the those who designed the UN came out with the idea of a veto power, uh, it was clear that this will make the Security Council less effective, but they thought that it was still necessary to uh, to get the great powers of the time to join. Well, now that we have sort of a foundation of what the UN is, uh, I think we could dive into the current Ukraine crisis. Could you tell us what were the actions taken by the UN leading up to Russia's invasion? In fact, leading up to... Uh, Russian invasion, the UN has been uh, has not been extremely active. Uh, you could say that 
most of the uh, diplomatic negotiations um, and attempts to uh, prevent the conflict have not really taken place uh, within the UN system itself. Uh, there have been maybe a few discussions uh, here and there in the Security Council, but overall, uh, it was mostly uh, informal discussions between uh, Russia and uh, a couple of other countries. Do you think there's a scenario in which the UN could have maybe done more or prevented somehow the invasion, or is that outside of the UN's uh, control at all? Um, so it is possible, one could argue, that maybe the, the UN will have been able to play a greater role, perhaps the Secretary General through uh, mediation. It looks like the UN was actually not expecting the invasion to happen. So in the early hours uh, of the invasion, the Secretary General uh, Guterres actually said that he was extremely surprised by Russia's decision, that he was not expecting it. Um, and then would the UN have been able to do something? Um, perhaps the sad truth is that by design, the, the UN cannot do much when one of its permanent, uh, one of the permanent members of the Security Council, like Russia, decides to, uh, to use force. Uh, it's really, uh, everyone knew from the, the start that the Security Council, for instance, will not be able to do anything. Uh, about it. So this is sort of a flaw in the design of the UN. Yes, exactly. The Just the way it's designed uh, with the veto power for the five permanent members that allows them to block any uh, Security Council uh, resolution makes it very hard to for the Security Council to act in this situation. When one of the P5 is directly involved into the conflict. Uh, so like Russia or the United States uh, or uh, any of the three others, P5, uh, it's almost impossible for the Security Council to, to take strong measures. So one of the UN's charters is that if a member persistently violates the principles contained in the charter, they can be expelled from the organization. Has this ever been applied overall, like this principle? Uh, so Article 6, like you said, makes it possible to expel uh, a member from the UN. This is an article that has never been applied uh, in the history of the UN. Uh, we could say the closest uh, the UN uh, got to uh, when to use this article was um, when South Africa was suspended. Uh, so this was actually under Article 5. So South Africa was suspended from the United Nations in 1974 uh, because of the uh, apartheid regime. Uh, this was done through a vote at the General Assembly uh, of the UN, which has all the member states of the UN, so currently 193. Um, and essentially a suspension meant that uh, South Africa could not participate into UN bodies or could not vote on any uh, in any UN uh, body. Do you think this measure could apply uh, to Russia or is Russia fully protected by being part of the Security Council? Uh, so 
Uh, that would be possible, uh, even though this has to be made usually on a recommendation of the Security Council, it would be possible for the General Assembly to bypass this uh, and make a vote. Um, but then in practice, uh, it will probably not change the situation. Um, and even perhaps that uh, some, it would be possible to argue that it could be counterproductive. Um, the way the UN is designed, it's uh, it's actually built to, uh, if you want to, uh, to sustain a lot of these storms, to have uh, deep uh, political conflicts, uh, and to uh, to be able to go through that. So, if you if Russia was to be suspended from the from the UN, uh, let's say. Uh, uh, you would lose some communication channels or some way through which uh, Russian diplomats can engage with uh, the rest of the world. Uh, and communication channels that are perhaps even more important uh, in times of crisis. So by expelling Russia, it would isolate them even more. Yeah, that will likely be the outcome. But that also means that the rest of the world would lose many avenues and instruments to be able to pressure Russia. Well, all of the, the, the measures that, you've, uh, that we've seen in the last weeks, uh, so votes at the General Assembly, uh, at the Human Rights Council, all of these things will probably no longer be possible if uh, Russia was to be either suspended or expelled uh, from the UN. Speaking of means of communication with Russia, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ukraine took Russia to the International uh, Court of Justice. And as the proceedings began, there was no representatives from Russia. If expelling Russia from the UN cuts them from mediation, but at the same time, they don't really seem to respect international mediation in the guess. What does this say about our international norms? Uh, the, the case of the International Court of Justice is interesting. Uh, this is a situation in which you uh, you get to see the, the gap between theory and practice. So last week, so I think it was last Wednesday, there was uh, actually a provisional ruling against Russia at the International Court of Justice. Um, so maybe to, to summarize the debate a little bit, uh, so since the start of uh, the its military operations in Ukraine, Russia has claimed that uh, it is intervening. Uh, part of the Russian ar argument has been that it is intervening in Ukraine because of the of an ongoing genocide against uh, ethnic Russians. And under the 1948 uh, Genocide Convention, uh, its uh, states have obligations to act when they are aware that the genocide uh, is happening uh, in another state. Uh, what uh, Ukraine did was to bring Russia to the ICJ to say that, uh, to basically fight against that claim, to say that Russia's claim to be, uh, to uh, that the uh, intervention is legal under the, under the 1948 Genocide Convention is, uh, is false. Uh, 
the ruling that we saw last week is a provisional ruling, so it's not yet on the substance of the issue, but it's still, uh, this is a ruling that went very far, uh, that even probably Ukraine did not go, did not expect the, the, the ruling to go so far. And the ruling said that uh, there was no evidence of an ongoing genocide and that therefore the, the Russian claim that this intervention was justified under the, the 1948 Genocide Convention uh, was wrong. And then the judgment said, the ruling said that Russia had to withdraw its troops from Ukraine immediately. Uh, and we see here the gap between theory and practice because um, the uh, this is a ruling that is legally binding. All uh, the rulings of the ICG are legally binding, uh, but Russia obviously will not, this is not going to change the situation on the ground, at least uh, not in the short uh, term. So just to wrap up the... What changes do you do you think the UN will change in the future, or what can we hope uh, might is improve the situation with uh, Russia or Ukraine? Is it up to the international? Um, is it up to other countries, or can we rely on the UN? Can we uh, rely on the UN? This is um, this is a uh, this is a great question because the in some way. As I said earlier, uh, by design, the UN cannot be uh, really effective when one of the P5 uh, uses force. Uh, the Security Council, it's pretty clear, will not be able to do much on the political side. Uh, you won't see anytime soon a, a, a resolution condemning uh, the Russian invasion or telling Russia to withdraw its troops. The Security Council could still be active on the humanitarian side. Uh, that's a little bit what we've seen uh, in Syria. In Syria, there was no political agreement whatsoever on how to address the situation. Uh, and he, even though there were deep disagreements between uh, Russia, China on the one hand, and uh, the UK, France, and the US on the other hand, the Security Council uh, we're still able to agree on a number of things when it comes to providing humanitarian aid for civilians. Uh, it was very minimal, but yeah, for many, many years, the Security Council was to was able to, to keep uh, open some border crossings from Turkey to bring humanitarian aid in Syria. Uh, so the Security Council could play a small role. Um, and then it might be another uh, UN organs as well, but mostly perhaps a symbolic role. Uh, we have seen two votes from the General Assembly uh, already condemning the uh, Russian invasion. Uh, two votes which were uh, major diplomatic defeats for uh, Russia. Uh, in both cases, we're talking about uh, resolutions condemning the invasion, telling Russia to withdraw its troops. And they were supported by, uh, for both votes, 100, about 140 member states, uh, about 30, 35 abstentions, uh, and just five countries voting uh, against these resolutions. Uh, so that includes uh, Russia, uh, Belarus, uh, Eritrea, 
um, and uh, Syria, and I think I forgot the, the last country, uh, but even countries that have been traditionally very close to Russia uh, abstained, so like Cuba or Venezuela, for instance. So this was surprising. So we can expect the UN system to apply a little bit more pressure uh, through multiple bodies in the next weeks and months. Uh, but perhaps mostly symbolic measures. These things might not change the situation on the ground, at least on the short term. Um, but we might see that as some sort of uh, maybe each time there is a vote of, of that uh, of that kind, this is another drop in the bucket, uh, another uh, another type of another pressure adding up to the uh, economic sanctions, the diplomatic uh, isolation uh, that Russia is uh, increasingly going to feel. Thank you very much. This has been a great conversation.